Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. Can Americans work together to solve the country's problems? That's our main question for today's guest on Future Hindsight, Dr. Robert P. Jones. He's the CEO of Public Religion Research Institute and a leading scholar and commentator, as well as the author of The End of White Christian America. PRRI is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that conducts high quality public opinion surveys and qualitative research in order for us to better understand debates on public policy issues and the role of religion and values in American public life. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. Happy to be here. Together with The Atlantic, you've now just completed two big surveys. One is about the challenges of voter knowledge, participation, and polarization. And the second, which just came out a few weeks ago, is on civic engagement, young adult activism, and the 2018 midterm elections. I have a question about the big picture. You named your survey American Democracy in Crisis. Why would you say that we are in crisis? Well, look, I I think we are at a moment where, you know, if you look at our basic democratic institutions, whether you're talking about voting, the role of an independent media, and really a functioning Congress, that we have on all of those fronts indications of gridlock, crisis, dysfunction, and outright attack in some quarters. And so we were really looking in these surveys to take a step back, take a broad look at these two areas ahead of our midterm elections of civic engagement and also voter participation. With the insight from your research, how would you describe where we stand as a society today? How do Americans relate to each other? We're seeing Unprecedented levels of partisan polarization is, I think, the first thing to say, that almost every issue today, if it's a major issue, gets refracted through the lens of partisanship. There are some signs that people feel like they could still cooperate and work across party lines at the local level, but at the national level, I think people are pretty cynical about it and I think have a lot of reasons uh, to be issues like immigration, the treatment of African-Americans by police. The distance between the two political parties on those questions can be as much as 40 or 50 percentage points. That's really large. What do you think are the most fruitful areas for us where we can work and bridge the divide and and lessen that gap? If we look at voter uh, participation, I think there's some real signs of hope that we can kind of get across some of these divides. The first thing to say, though, is that we do have very, very low voter participation. You know, we're about to head into the midterm elections here, and the last midterm election, voter turnout was only 36%. And among young people, it was only 19%. So that was a near historic low. Now, we have some early signs from early voting that look like that may tick up this year, uh, so that would be a good thing. One thing people uh, broadly agree on is that more voter participation would be good, that not enough people vote. And then a number of things about making voting easier, things like same-day voting, automatic voter registration, like when you go and you renew your driver's license that you are automatically registered to vote at that point, or something like a national holiday for voting, because one of the big problems is some people can't get off work to actually vote. So there's broad actually agreement on that. We just haven't turned into political action. Right. One of the things that you covered in your report the summer is that Americans are remarkably uncertain about election laws in their state. Do you think that uncertainty about election laws prevent voting? 
Absolutely. I think another kind of broad finding that we had is that there is a need for pretty widespread civic education about just what basic voting rights are. So, for example, a quarter of Americans say they were unsure about even the most fundamental thing, that is that you have to be an American citizen in order to be eligible to vote. But then when we got to other kinds of things, we asked about, for example, not having a permanent address, does that disqualify you from voting, being late to pay your taxes, even things like having an outstanding parking ticket or an unpaid utility bill. And on many of those things, as many as six in 10 Americans said they weren't sure whether that would disqualify them from voting. That's really remarkable. You also broke Americans down essentially into four voting typologies, consistent, presidential, irregular, and non-voter. Can you give us a little bit of background to those numbers? Like, who are the people who do what? The voting population looks significantly different from the general population. So that is, it's less representative of all Americans. And that's because of differential turnout rates. Essentially, at the high end of voting, you have older, white, non-Hispanic citizens that are of the most regular voters. That is the declining portion of the American population. Uh, one way to think about this is as the population is basically becoming less Christian and less white over time, and as that shift has been happening, we haven't quite seen it show up at the ballot box. And the ballot box today acts like a time machine that takes us back about 10 years, demographically speaking. That means you can kind of think about this forward, too. So the diversity that we have in the American religious and ethnic landscape today really will not fully show up at the ballot box until 2024 if current turnout rates stay the same. Now, one caveat to that is that we are seeing in this midterm election cycle, in these polls with The Atlantic and other polls that PRI has conducted independently, a very consistent strain. And that is that African-American women in the midterm elections this year look like they will be turning out at much higher rates than they have historically. That would actually be something quite new. And that has mostly been fueled by opposition to President Trump. I have a bunch of questions around this, naturally. But my first is you actually covered this in your survey, is that there's a sharp divide in views of the president by religious affiliation. And almost eight out of 10 white evangelicals express a favorable opinion of him, whereas a majority of religious affiliations have a poor opinion. Can you explain this? Why do you think that is? Well, you know, if I could completely explain it, this backing of Donald Trump as a candidate and Donald Trump as a president, his life, his values, the way he talks, does not square up with what white evangelicals have typically said they're looking for in a presidential candidate. Uh, We've been tracking this all the way through President Trump's tenure as president, and we've seen white evangelical Protestant support for the president stay at around 7 and 10 throughout his presidency, despite whatever scandal or thing that he said. So the question is, why? There's a couple of reasons. One is that white evangelicals have, for a couple of generations now, been just overwhelmingly Republican. Since Ronald Reagan, white evangelicals have voted somewhere between 75 and 80 percent for Republican presidential candidates. But it's not just that, because even when we ask white evangelicals to look ahead to 2020, and we asked them, look, would you rather have a different Republican candidate instead of President Trump? By a margin of two to one, they say they would prefer to stay with President Trump for a second term. So there's a real connection there. I've written about this in in my book, The End of White Christian America. What I concluded there after looking at a bunch of opinion surveys is that white evangelicals have really been transformed in this last election cycle from self-proclaimed values voters 
they have become what I've called nostalgia voters. The thing they find, the Make America Great Again piece, that last word, again, is this kind of hearkening back to a previous golden age. And so as the country is changing demographically, the country has embraced same-sex marriage, for example, white evangelicals, I think, are finding themselves increasingly outliers on a number of issues. And President Trump's promise to turn the clock back and bring us back to sort of a 1950s America has had very strong appeal. We actually even asked them about this question and it just said, do you agree or disagree that American culture and way of life has changed for the better or changed for the worse? since the 1950s. The two political parties are mere opposites on this question. About two-thirds of Republicans say it's changed for the worst. Two-thirds of Democrats say it's changed for the better. But there's no demographic group who thinks it's changed for the worst more than white evangelical Protestants, 75% of whom say that things have changed for the worst since the 1950s. Wow, that's a remarkable thing, the mirror images and those numbers. There is a generational disagreement about the efficacy of voting, 64% of Americans say voting regularly in elections is the most effective thing they can do. But when you break it down, really something like 80% of seniors agree and only a third of young people. You kind of alluded to it earlier, but what does that mean for us going forward? Well, the second survey we did with The Atlantic was really taking a deep dive and looking at youth and trying to figure out whether like the anecdotal things that we see, like participation in marches and protests with the students from Parkland High School against gun violence in Florida, those marches that took place nationwide around those issues, whether those things were translating into other kinds of civic participation and an uptick in, in voting in the midterms. And the short answer to that is that it doesn't look like it. Part of it is a kind of natural lower turnout that we kind of always see among young people. And part of that has to do actually with difficulty in voting, that uh, young people move around a lot, and they change addresses a lot, so they may not know where their polling place is, they may not remember whether they were registered at their previous place, and that uncertainty creates a, kind of an unwillingness to go and stand in line and find out that you're at the wrong place or that you aren't registered. But what we find is that only about 3 in 10 say that they're absolutely certain to vote in this election, but when we dig a little deeper and we ask this question you were referring to about what's the best way to affect change. Basically, everyone older than 30 is overwhelmingly convinced that voting is a fundamental way that you create change. But only about half of young people say that. So there is a little more cynicism. And, and the other place where they stand out is they're less likely to say voting is the, the best way to create change. They're more likely than other generations to say that volunteering for a group or a cause is a way to create change. So it undoubtedly, I think, is linked to the fact that most of uh, these folks have grown up where there has been kind of gridlock at the federal level. It's definitely important to underscore that this environment breeds cynicism and makes you think your vote really doesn't matter, especially after the 2016 election results. It's really difficult to say, well, I should stand in line for an hour and vote. Although on that point, you know, it cuts both ways because on the one hand, right, that we, we did have Hillary Clinton winning the popular vote by three million votes, right? But on the other hand, if you look at the way the Electoral College works, it really came down to a little more than 80,000 votes in three states. And in Michigan, it was like 10,000 votes that 0.1% of the vote that really flipped, you know, that state. When you think about it that way, it actually does argue for every single vote matters when you're down to a difference of 0.1% in a key state. 
Yes. In fact, you also did a special survey in the Great Lakes region, including Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, and Ohio. What do you discover in this subset of the population and how it differs from the larger population? They are uh, very critical battleground states where they can go Democrat, they can go Republican, depending on the election. Uh, And it was Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania that ultimately decided the Electoral College. And by and large, they mostly look like uh, the rest of the country. The one state that consistently stands out on these participation issues is actually Minnesota. There is kind of higher likelihood to be civically engaged, higher likelihood to vote. Part of it may be this, uh, you know, kind of legacy of the Lutheran civic engagement sensibility that may be fueling that. I want to return to this idea that you spoke about briefly, which is that on the federal level, Americans think that we cannot work together to solve the problems. But about 56% say yes to solving local problems. How can you explain this dichotomy? Because those things should go hand in hand. We've seen this divide on a number of levels. And again, I think it really comes down to that for several election cycles, certainly going back to the beginning of Barack Obama's presidency in 2008, we've seen kind of a solid decade of hyper-partisanship at the national level. I've started describing this as almost a kind of tribalism. When you start thinking about issues and things that way, there's a kind of orthodoxy that sets in and people stop thinking about issues as issues and they just start thinking about them as tribal identity markers. So if I'm a Republican, I have to oppose same-sex marriage. If I'm a Democrat, I have to support it. People really do stop interrogating the issues and and instead the issues just become an indication of partisan loyalty. People are just jaded. And also just the tone and the tenor of our national politics, particularly in the Trump era, have just become fairly toxic. We also found in a recent survey that uh, 7 in 10 Americans are saying, I just need a break from the news, just the onslaught here. And so I think that means that things at the local level become a lot more tractable. Part of that is because um, of relationships, you know, that people maybe on different sides of a partisan aisle, but they may know someone at the local level and maybe their kids play on the same softball team or soccer team and they have an opportunity to know each other in different contexts. And also at the local level, it is often pragmatic. Are the streets getting paved? Are the lights on? Those kinds of questions that are more pragmatic than partisan and I think lend themselves to much more cooperation than than things at the national level do. Do you think that the success on the local level can be somehow translated and generalized to the national level? I think I'm a little skeptical. I haven't quite seen it. Part of the problem is that even at the local level, some of our institutions that were designed to kind of bring us together across lines of class and race and partisanship and put us all together in a community have also broken down. For example, the the most fundamental institution that really has been designed to do that are our public schools, where kids across lines of race, class, party, you know, are brought together at the local community level. Since Brown v. Board of Education, there was kind of a high point in the 80s where the effects of Brown did actually integrate the schools at a significant level. But since the 80s, that has actually been declining. So we're now almost back to where we were in terms of uh, racial segregation. And increasingly, churches are actually being sorted by party. They're also heavily divided by race. 86% of our churches today in the country are essentially monoracial churches. There are very, very few multiracial churches. And as I said, increasingly, even within white churches, they're getting sorted by, by partisanship. 
What do you attribute this increased, I guess, tribalization in public spaces like public schools and churches? Well, the thing we haven't really talked much about is race. I think this is one of the fundamental fault lines that America is really not fully grappled with. For example, if you look at Republicans and you use this metric of white Christians, the Republican Party today is around 7 in 10 white and Christian. The Democratic Party is about 3 in 10 white and Christian, and it's becoming increasingly those ways. If we go back about 10 years ago, the proportion of white Christians in the two parties is only 30 points, and today it's 50 percentage points difference in, in just that metric. Those things working together has been a real challenge for us. And in particular, I think there is a, among white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, right, we have this little acronym WASP. That's the group that's really been in charge of the country. It's been the kind of cultural elite, the demographic majority for most of the country's life. And in the last 10 years, that's really shifted. We've gone from being a majority white Christian country, even if you put all Christians together, Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, non-denominational White non-Hispanic Christians made up 54% of the country at the beginning of Barack Obama's presidency, and in our last election cycle, that number had dropped down to below 50% and down to 45%, and then we have tracked it over the last couple of years. We're down now to 42% in the country. So that sea change from a majority white Christian country to one that's no longer a majority white Christian country has also set about a kind of identity crisis in some circles, particularly among white conservative Christians that I think has kind of fueled some of the kind of visceral fight to the death kind of instincts that we're seeing in our national politics. I didn't realize the numbers were so severe. We probably will both agree that we need more civics education and also more civic engagement. But when it comes to civic and political participation, what has surprised you the most in your findings of your survey? Well, I think we were surprised to see that the anecdotal things among youth have not quite translated into broader civic engagement, like contacting a congressperson, and it doesn't really translate, at least in these surveys, into voting. The other one is one I flagged early in the conversation is keeping an eye on the activism of African-American women. They seem to be very energized. They are as likely as white men to say that they're going to turn out and vote. And white men typically are the highest turnout group. And if we ask a question a different way, we ask, how many of your friends are going to be voting? African-American women are about three times as likely as whites to say that all of their friends are going to be voting in the midterm election. So that's kind of another indication of kind of energy and investment and commitment. I want to change tracks a little bit and talk about your work. Why is your work important, doing these surveys and basically measuring the temperature of American society? So we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan, and non-advocacy organization, and our mission really is to conduct the best and most objective independent public opinion polling that we can. We're all open source. We release our results to the public. We publish the full questionnaire that we use. And after an embargo period, we actually release the full data set so people can even reanalyze the data independently. We do all that, I think, as a kind of making a contribution to public conversation. Our key customers, if you will, are really journalists and helping them write better stories, 
get beyond anecdotes and really have some hard data. Also, policymakers, other members of the public, just to kind of have a sense of where things are. The public only has a chance to express its views at the national level every couple of years. What happens in between that time? How do policymakers know what the public wants and doesn't want, where they are? This kind of aggregate megaphone that a good public opinion poll can provide is an important service. Sounds like you're super passionate about this. Why are you engaged in this space? I'm a, kind of an AWOL academic. I have a PhD in uh, religious studies and uh, where I was uh, kind of worked in kind of the social sciences. So I spent a few years teaching at Missouri State University and others, but I, I really uh, am passionate about this work. I find it endlessly fascinating that if you conduct the poll well, you construct the questions well, within a few weeks, you can have an answer about what Americans believe, what they think, what, what they're afraid of, what they hope for. And it really is, a, I think, a powerful tool for really understanding a country as large and as diverse as this one, and also helping to understand not only where the fault lines are, but why those fault lines are there, I think is also one of the more kind of engaging and fascinating things about the work. What makes you hopeful? <laughs> I do think the local data we talked about makes me hopeful that, you know, despite the national kind of polarization that does look fairly toxic, it's a little easy to get cynical when you look at some of those numbers. But when you look at the local level, that there are people putting aside those differences, trying to make their communities better. I think that makes me hopeful. And, you know, if we could take that snapshot and sort of build it from the bottom up, I think that's a good place to go for the future. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you. The combination of extreme partisanship with a lack of knowledge around voting makes it difficult not to be cynical. I'm astonished to learn that so many Americans don't know that they need to be citizens in order to vote. Yet at the same time, they think they may be ineligible due to an outstanding parking ticket. I'm heartened that at least at the local level, we're still willing to collaborate to find pragmatic solutions to things like whether the streetlights work. We must find a way to bring the spirit of collaboration, of coming together as a society from the local level to the national level. There is much to be done. For starters, we need to educate the populace about the power of voting to affect change and the importance of everyone participating. All Americans have a stake in electing leaders who really represent who we are. I hope that we don't have to wait until 2024 for that to happen. We should follow the example of black women who are committed to vote this year and engage their communities to do the same. Vote on November 6th. What is it actually like to knock on doors and talk about politics? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Ben Theodore. He's a Brooklynite with a daytime job with the Department of Education, who has a passion for civic engagement and a thing or two to say about the power of grassroots activism. Politics is very often portrayed as like a game or a sport where there are opposing sides and we're the fans on the sidelines and we show up and we cheer and we argue and we watch it like we're at a sports bar watching a game on TV. But that's not what politics is. We as citizens aren't the fans, we're the players. We have the opportunity and also the responsibility to actually impact the outcomes. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsunbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com. 
and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Thank you.